don't have a study sheet to pass out this week because we will have a about a two-week hiatus. Is that how you say that? Hiatus. <laughs> uh, next week, uh, Jim, I didn't warn you this. I may actually be here next time. Uh, I'll let you deal with that. Uh, we actually expect to pull into town sometime in the middle of the night, Saturday night. So if I'm coherent enough, I may show up and heckle. But, uh, but uh, well, so. According to statistics, only seven percent of Christians have a biblical worldview. In a room like this, that means only out of this number of people, only about two of us. If you talk generalities in Christianity. Mm-hmm. So we're going to talk about that. Oh, good. Great. What does it mean to have... Good. That's a great subject. What is a worldview? <laughs> great. Good. That'll be good stuff to talk about. And like I said, we I may be here. We'll, we'll see if, if I can crawl out of bed after driving in at 4 o'clock in the morning or something like that. But, but, uh, and then the following week is the uh, ladies' Christmas tea. So instead of you ladies being in here with us... Uh, you will be at the Christmas tea, and so uh, so us guys will fend for ourselves in here, and uh, but we'll hold off on our study of Genesis until we're all back together. So we will have two weeks in which we will be doing other things, uh, and then we'll be back again together in the book of Genesis on December 13th. Okay, so. Uh, so that's that's the plan. And sometime between now and then, I will get study sheets to you. Either we'll have either I'll have some for Jim to hand out next week, uh, or I'll have some here the following week for you to pick up. So if you ladies, uh, if you don't have a husband in here, come drop by the class and pick up one, uh, either before or after the tea. Not a husband. Pardon? Uh, not a husband. Yeah, not a husband. Yeah, a study sheet. Yes, yeah, so pick up pick up a study sheet, not a husband. That's, Thank you for that clarification. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> we don't want to be confused on this. So, okay, we are in Genesis, uh, and and uh, and we are in the middle of the uh, uh, what we call the fourth Toledot, uh, in, that began at the beginning of chapter ten, and we are at the beginning of chapter eleven today. So uh, last week we looked at uh, we looked at uh, pretty much all of chapter ten, uh, which is an account of the records of the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and uh, it's uh, basically a genealogy, some of it linear and some of it segmented. We talked about all that uh, a number of weeks ago. What do you remember that we glean from this? genealogy that normally when we read through Genesis, we just kind of speed read through. <laughs> Last week, we took a little time and looked at it. What do you remember we talked about? Seventy nations. Seventy nations, okay. Is there any significance to that? Okay, uh, with Jacob, yeah. When Jacob and his family went to Egypt, and we'll get to that story eventually towards the end of Genesis. There seems to be some correlation uh, between the 70 who went into the 70 children of Abraham who went into Egypt and the and the the 70 nations. The idea that there's a, a representation there. There's a connection between the people of Israel and the nations of the world, and we'll draw more on that today as we go on further in the passage, but. What else? Well, Rick, I wasn't here last week, but I have a question. Mm-hmm. Related to what we answered that question last week. <laughs> ah, yeah. Well, then you can remind everybody. Okay. Um, normally, when, you're, when it's, you list uh, children, you start with the oldest, uh-huh. go to the youngest, mm-hmm. and Ham is the youngest, but he's mentioned in the middle. Did you guys talk about that as significance of it if there is any? Well, actually, there's a great deal of discussion about whether or not Ham is the youngest. Some oh. think he's the youngest. Some think he's some think he's the middle child. 
And uh, it's a little hard to sort all that through when you compare all the different passages. So it, it's really kind of uh, a little bit up for grabs. But there is, a, there is a significance to the sequence in which they are mentioned. And we did answer that question last week, incidentally. So somebody out here remembers what the significance is of the sequence. And he started out the furthest away from God's chosen Okay, okay. Okay, yeah. He starts out on the furthest horizons out from, uh, from, from the people to whom he's writing, which, of course, the Israelites in the wilderness. And he starts the furthest out. So he starts with the sons of Japheth. And they're the ones that are clear out in the far coastlands, as he says here in, in the passage. They're out on the coastlands and the far islands and the remoter parts of the earth. And we actually went through and we listed some of these. We didn't talk about all of them, but we talked about some of these and where these different peoples are located. And some of them are, were located at the time of this writing. Some of them were located off in Asia and Southeast Asia and some up into the area that we know of today as Russia. Uh, and in the Caucasus Mountains areas, and some of them as far out as Spain. So he goes, he, he deals with those who are the furthest out first, and then he does the sons of Ham, who are the ones who are closer in, the immediate neighbors, or the ones who are going to be the immediate neighbors, the Canaanites and the Egyptians and the people like that, who are the immediate neighbors and often, oftentimes are the enemies of Israel. And then third, he deals with the sons of Shem, who are the closest relatives uh, to to. Uh, uh, the, the sons of Israel. And so, so there does appear to be some significance there to the sequence in which they're listed, Jim, to answer your question. Anything else? If everyone is not listed, but there are a few that are developed and, and brought out. Okay. I mean, he'd skip some of the grandchildren, but then he would include and give you specific details. Mm -hmm. Okay. So... So that actually gives us more reason to assume that there's some significance to the 70 because he, because he obviously has left some out and selected some so as to come up with the number 70, which seems to give some impression that this number of 70 is representative of the whole world, is the, uh, the number 70 representing with, with a combination of number 10 and number 7, both of which represent completion in Scripture, is the idea of the completion or the full representation of the nations. Okay, So he doesn't include all the nations. Now, we talked last week about, about if you were an Israelite sitting you know, in the door of your tent reading this, reading this uh, table of nations for the first time by candlelight in the door of your tent or by the by the light of the pillar of fire or whatever, and you're reading your, you know, your hot off the press copy of the Table of Nations, what strikes you about this passage? Israel's not in there. Israel's not in there. Okay. Israel is excluded from the Table of Nations. Okay. Did we address that at all? And don't say no. <laughs> okay. Okay, okay, and we'll talk more about that today. Okay, so they are left out in part because they have God has a special, unique purpose for them in this whole scope of things, and He'll eventually get to that. He'll get to that in the next Taladot, but in this Taladot, He doesn't mention them. Okay, there's another reason why He doesn't mention them. How does how does how is it determined what nations go into the list of the table of nations? What are the what are the defining characteristics that qualify a people or a nation to be listed in this table of nations? By their language, by their land, and by their association. Okay, so by their... Yes, exactly. By their family and their language. And he says, by their land. And he repeats that three times in the passage, okay? In, in verse 5, and I think down around verse uh, uh, 20 or so, and... and uh, uh, at any rate, there's at verse 30, somewhere in there. But he mentions it three times, okay? And land is one of those things. Well, when the table of nations is compiled and written for the children of Israel in the wilderness, they have no land, okay? These are people without a land. And they have been without a land since the day that, God, that Abraham responded to the call of God. Remember, God calls Abraham. We'll get to this here in a couple of weeks. Uh, God calls 
Abraham, he calls him out from his people and from his land. And Abraham leaves that land and then we find in Hebrews that in describing Abraham and his faith that he wandered about uh, without a land and without a place because he was looking for a city whose builder and architect was God. Okay, So from the time of the call of Abraham until the children of Israel finally do enter into, the, into Canaan, uh, at the end of their wanderings in the wilderness, they don't have a land. So they really don't qualify to be in the table of nations at this point. Okay. Anything else? A couple people in particular are pointed out in this table. Remember anything about them? Okay. We talked about Peleg. Or Peleg, however you want to say it. Okay, he's the son of Eber, and Eber has two sons. Who's the other son? Joktam. Okay, uh, so there's Joktam and there's Peleg, and 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 Peleg is named division. Okay, and it says he's named division because in his lifetime or in his life. Uh, the peoples were separated. And we talked about two distinct kind of separations that are become apparent in the life of Peleg. And the first one is what? Or one of them is what? What's he referring to when he talks about the separation? Okay, he's talking about Babylon. He's talking about Babylon. He's talking about the story we're going to talk about today, okay? When the nations are scattered over the face of the earth. But there's another significant separation that occurs in the life of Peleg, or in his generation, we might say, okay? What is that separation? Okay, the separation again of the righteous and unrighteous line. This theme that we're seeing all the way through Genesis. This distinction between the righteous and the unrighteous line. So the thing that's interesting about these two sons of Eber is that when he mentions Joktam, he mentions all of Joktam, or he mentions Joktam's descendants, okay? And he talks about them and he talks about where they live. But when he mentions Peleg, he just stops there. He doesn't say any more about Peleg, okay? And so we go, well, that's interesting. Well, the reason is because he's going to pick Peleg up. He's going to pick up the story of Peleg in the next Taladot, okay, in the next account, which we'll pick up uh, after we finish the story today. So, so the next time we're together in, in, in three weeks when we're together, all together again, uh, we will look at, at the descendants of Shem and we'll come down to Peleg and we'll go on through Peleg all the way down to whom? Pardon? No. Abraham. All the way down to Abraham. Okay. So the, so the other division, the first division is the scattering of the nations. The second division that, that is pointed out to us in this passage by the way it's compiled is the division between the righteous line and the unrighteous line. The righteous line being represented by Peleg and his descendants and the unrighteous line being represented by Joktam. And we'll talk a little bit more about him today. Okay. So that's all by way of review. We also did talk about Nimrod, okay? What did we learn about this character? Okay, we find out he's a, he's a tyrant. He's a big boy, okay? He's a very mighty, powerful, influential ruler of some kind. And, and there is, in, in, in the, uh, in the uh, meaning of his name, is the idea of one who is a tyrant, okay? So he's really kind of the first tyrannical emperor, okay? And he builds a number of cities for which he is known. And a couple of those cities ring a bell with us. They are what? Babel and Nineveh, okay? So these are two cities that we encounter then on throughout the rest of Scripture. We keep encountering these uh, Scriptures. Nineveh, of course, is the city that Jonah went to and preached the Gospel to. Uh, many, many, many years later, okay? And, of course, Babel is a city that we will encounter now. So, as we read the story that we're going to look at today, the story of, of, of uh, the Tower of Babel, keep in mind that the guy who it says in chapter 10 built this city was a guy named Nimrod. So, what we know about Nimrod plays into the story, even though he's not actually mentioned here in these first verses of chapter 11. So let's pick it up in chapter 11 and just read down through these first 
nine verses which completes this particular Taladot. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. And it came about as they journeyed east that they found, in the plain, uh, found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. They said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do and now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. Okay? Well, it's a short little story and it's just kind of stuck in here and you read it and you go, mm, that's interesting. And we have to ask ourselves, well, is the only point of this story just to tell us where we got all the languages? <laughs> and if so, what's the significance? Well, that's not really the purpose of the story. And in fact, the placement of the story is kind of interesting. You notice that he places it here at the end of this Taladot, which began in the beginning of chapter 10 and, and ends here with verse 9. Uh, he places it here at the end. But in chapter 10, the passage we looked at last week, we were talking all about the nations and how they had been scattered over the face of the whole earth, right? So we've already talked all about nations being all over the world and where they were located. And in fact, as you go through Genesis chapter 10, in some cases he actually mentions some of the places where these people actually lived. Okay, and, and so we have already encountered this idea of the nations being scattered or the peoples being scattered across the face of the earth. Okay? So the question is, why does he wait until now to tell us how that happened? Okay? You would expect that the story of the Tower of Babel would come earlier in the Taladot. Okay? But it comes at the end. And, and if you were an author and you were writing and you wanted people to understand, if you took something that was foundational to understanding how the story unfolded and stuck it at the end of your story, you would want to have a pretty good reason for that, right? Okay? So presumably, as Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, compiles this account for us, he reserves this account of why the nations were scattered or how the nations were scattered over the face of the earth. He reserves it to the end of the Taladot, to the end of the account. And he apparently does so because in the development of his theme, in the development of the ideas that he's trying to communicate, this is a turning point. This is a key transitional point. So this is more than just a story about how the nations got their languages. This is a profound turning point. In fact, this event at, on the plains of Shinar is really a dividing line between these two lines that we just talked about, the descendants of Eber, Joktam, and Peleg. Okay? This is really the dividing line. This, is, this event is the line of demarcation. And we'll move from here into, uh, into the descendants of Shem. Now we think, well, we've already talked about the descendants of Shem, right? Well, he's going to devote an entire Taladot. At the, end, uh, at the last part of chapter 11, he, he, uh, he devotes an entire Taladot to 
the descendants of Shem. So even though he, he's talked about the descendants of Shem in conjunction with his two brothers, now he's going to focus more particularly on the descendants of Shem and he's going to follow them not only down to the story of Peleg, but beyond Peleg and all the way down to Abraham. And when we get to Abraham, we're going to see in the life of Abraham a stark contrast to what happens here in the beginning of chapter 11 at the Tower of Babel. Okay. So really this story of the Tower of Babel is a transition between the Taladot that we're in and the Taladot that is to come. Okay. So that's one of the reasons apparently why Moses de decided to leave this part of the story to the end even though it really explains things that happened earlier. Okay. So as we're reading chapter uh, 11, the first nine verses, remember that it really fits back somewhere in the middle of chapter 10 that we looked at last week. Okay? It doesn't happen after those events, but happens somewhere back in the middle of those events. Okay? And, and that the reason is, is to point out to us that catalytic event, if you will, that distinguishes the righteous from the unrighteous line. Okay? Uh, and then as we get started in the story, I want to point out that as we're reading this story, about these people who come to the plain of Shinar and they, and they, they discover the technology of fire, firing brick and etc. and they build, this, uh, they build this city and they build this tower and then God comes down and He interrupts the whole process. In this story, there are a couple things in the story that if you're reading them and you're just kind of getting the general theme or the general idea of the story, there's a couple things in the story you go, well, why does he mention that? Why does, why does he, you know, it seems kind of superfluous to me as, as he mentions those things. Are there things in the story that you look at and you go, well, you know, what's the point of that? What's the significance of that? There would have been I've read the story before. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Okay. Well, that sounds like something's kind of significant to me. Right? I think that's significant. I'm talking about things that you read and go, why does he bother mentioning that? Okay. One of them is this whole discussion of the technology. What difference does that make to us? Why does Moses even bother telling us about the technology involved? in the construction of the Tower of Babel, okay? So that's one. There's another one. It just kind of slips in there and you might not really even have noticed it. It seems so insignificant. But in verse 2, what does he say? That they moved east. That they moved east, okay. Well, what's the significance of that, if any, okay? Well, actually, those two things, I think, really are significant and and to me are 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 a couple of the more challenging aspects of this passage when I think about how it applies in my own life. So we'll look at that and, and we'll explore that as we go forward. Okay? But to kind of set up the story, we start in, in verse 1 and the Lord points out to us that the whole nation spoke with one language and they used the same words. Okay? Well, I don't know exactly... Uh, I don't know if I could say dogmatically why he says it kind of twice. Okay, He says they use the same language and they use the same words or they have the same language and they use the same words. But it seems like what he's trying to communicate to us is not only that they all use the same language, but they all also use the same words. And you go, well, yeah, that's what he said. Yeah, that's what he said. But you know the experience, right? We all use the same language, but we don't always always use the same words, right? Okay? We can all sit in this classroom and talk. And uh, uh, you can come in, but there's no place for you to sit. So your husband will have to give you a seat. <laughs> We all use the same language and we can sit around in this classroom and talk, but if we all went over there a couple miles over and sat down there at the university and sat in a philosophy class 
or a chemical engineering class or something like that, some of us would be kind of lost, right? <laughs> because they start using words that we don't understand, okay? Or if some of us from Oklahoma were to go up to, uh, as we were coming through the parking lot, we noticed there's a car out there from Massachusetts. If all, <laughs> I don't know who's here uh, in the church from Massachusetts, but if we were all to go up to Massachusetts, we'd be using the same language, right? but we'd be using different words. Or if you went to England or Australia, you might have some difficulty understanding. Okay? The idea, I think, that's being communicated here is not only that there's a unity of language among all the peoples, but there's not even any dialects. You know? There's not all these different dialects that people have that oftentimes make it, uh, make it difficult uh, to understand one another. Okay? Yes, sir? Even in my own house. <laughs> well, we'll just leave it at that. Communication can be different. We have a Tower of Babel at Jim McIntyre's house. And if you all want an illustration of this, you can go to Jim's house. Now, uh, yeah, we have problems communicating. Well, the idea is I'm sure that people had difficulty I think I'm sure they had communication breakdowns in their in that day. But the idea is they had one language and they used the same words. And so one of the primary things that causes divisions among people today and causes people not to relate to one another or get along or understand one another or be able to work together, which is the which is the, the plethora of languages that we have, that didn't exist. Okay? And that makes sense. They all came from Noah. And they came from Noah's three sons. So whatever language Noah spoke, probably his three sons spoke the same language, except during that time of the generation conflict thing, you know. But they basically spoke the same language. And, and so over a period of generations, that just continued. So now we come to a point where God wants to point out to us that this is still the case. Everybody's still speaking the same language, okay? And as the generations go on, as time goes on, people begin to move. Now, they're moving from where? Okay, specifically where? Where, where were they the last time we checked the geography of this? They were in the vicinity of Ararat. Okay, that's where the ark landed. And they're in the vicinity of Ararat. Okay, but they have begun to move. And they have moved in what direction? They have moved east, and they eventually end up where? On a plane. Okay, they're on a plane, and specifically what plane? And not an airplane either. Okay, what? The plane of Shinar. Okay, does anybody have any idea where that is? Okay, in the vicinity of Tigris and Euphrates, we have a pretty good clue of where it is. In fact, we know exactly where it is because they built a city there, right? The city was what? Babylon, Babylon. okay, Babel or Babylon, okay? And we actually know where the ruins of Babylon are. We can go over there and take pictures of them. So we actually know where this plain of Shinar was and we know where Mount Ararat was and so we can confirm, yes, in fact, they did move eastward. Okay. Now, you and I read that, and it may not particularly catch our attention, but if you're, as we were imagining ourselves last week, one of those children of Israel sitting in a tent in the wilderness reading your you know, hot-off-the-press copy of the Table of Nations in this particular Taladot, when it says they moved east, you go, oh, I remember some things about going east. Okay, And the fact is that beginning here in Genesis, actually beginning very early in Genesis, and all the way through Scripture into the book of Revelation, east, the idea of the east or moving east or coming from the east has a symbolism to it. Okay? Now, I want to be very careful. It's a symbolism. Okay? The east is not a wicked place. Okay? <laughs> if you decide to move to North Carolina or New York or, or Boston, you know, you've not chosen to move to a wicked place as opposed to Oklahoma, okay? But symbolically in Scripture, the East 
represents certain things associated with evil. Okay? And the reason is, the reason for that is that several times here early in the story, it very clearly is associated with something evil. And the first case of somebody going east associated with something evil would be what? Before that. Adam and Eve, okay? When they are driven out of the garden, they are driven which direction? East, okay? How do we know? Okay, they were east of the garden and where did the Lord put the cherubim? On the east side of the garden, right? To keep them from coming back in, okay? So the first... If you're, if you're reading this for the first time and you're an Israelite out there in the wilderness and reading this story or hearing this story for the first time, you're going, oh, they moved east after the flood. Well, that's kind of like Adam and Eve being driven out of the garden and they go east. And then after the story of Adam and Eve going east, then we have Cain, okay? And Cain murders his brother and God... Uh, puts this judgment on him and says he's going to be a wanderer. And what does he do? He wanders east. Okay, folks, this is obvious now. Come on. He wanders east. And after he wanders east, what does he do? He builds a city. Okay? So, so as they're reading this account of the story of Babel, their minds are being thrown back to the creation story and the story of Cain. Okay? As you go forward in the story from this point, we will encounter another story where somebody's going east. And that's the story of Abraham and... Yeah. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to ask her in the ESV, it says, and his people migrated from... Right, yes. Uh, I guess I should have mentioned that. Some translations do translate it that direction, but all the commentaries I read indicated that the proper translation would be that they actually moved east. And since we know geographically where they started from, which was Ararat, and where they ended up, which was in the region of the Tigris-Euphrates, we know they, in fact, did move east rather than the opposite direction. So, that, so there is some apparent difficulty in the translation, but it becomes obvious as you re- look at the geography how it should be translated. So, thanks for mentioning that. I appreciate that. I should have brought that up. So, Okay? So, we have, another, we have another incident in which the East has this association in the story of Abraham, and that is what? Lot. Okay? And what's that about? Of course, we'll get to it eventually, but what's that about? Okay? Abraham and Lot, their, their servants aren't getting along because there's so many of them in one place. And so Abraham says, okay, we'll separate. And you go one direction, I'll go another. And Lot chooses to go east. east. To where? I think somebody just... Didn't you just mention it? To Sodom. He goes east to live near Sodom. So we have this pattern. We have this illustration. Okay, So... I don't want to give you the impression that there's something inherently sinful about the plains of Shinar. But it's the significance of the symbolism in the passage here that Moses wants to point out to us that they are moving east. And in the story of Adam and Eve, and in the story of Cain, and even in the story of Lot and Abraham, when somebody's moving east, they are moving away from the place of the presence of God. They're moving away from the place of God's blessing. God had placed upon Adam and Eve this great blessing in the Garden of Eden. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And they are moving away from that place of blessing and place of the presence of God. Okay? And Cain also wanders away from the place of blessing and the place of the... Uh, uh, the the place of of the presence of God, and now we have the children of uh, of Shem and Ham and Japheth, and they are also moving away now from the region of Ararat. Now, now let me clarify: this is symbolic here. There's nothing wrong with them moving. Okay, in fact, they're commanded to do that. Okay, they're expected to spread out. Okay. But instead of spreading out, what do they do? 
They all group together. Okay, so so they're moving, but they're not moving in the way that God told them to move. They're not doing really what God told them to do. They are hanging together. Now, this is pretty easy for me to understand. If I'm kind of the papa of all this operation, you know, and, you know, I kind of like having my kids close. So, you know, if I had my brothers, my kids wouldn't move to places like Iowa and Texas and Russia. and I, You know, I wouldn't choose that. If I had my brother, I'd kind of keep us hanging together, right? That's just the nature of the beast, right? That's the nature of being a family, right? So that's what they're doing. They're hanging together. And as they're hanging together, and slowly over a period of time, they move eastward. And in doing so, we begin to understand, because of the symbolism of it, that they're really moving away from the presence of God. And they're moving away from the place of God's covenant promise. And they come eventually to the plain of Shinar. And they decide that they're going to settle on the plain of Shinar. And at this point then, they make a discovery. Or someplace along the line, they make a discovery. And what is that discovery? How to build better buildings. How to build better buildings, right. They discovered the nail gun. <laughs> they discovered how to build better buildings. Up till now, when you made bricks, you just sun-dried them. You, know, you put them in the shape and you set them out there and you let the sun dry. But now they have discovered the technology of firing bricks. Okay, so now they're beginning to fire bricks and they have figured out that there's stuff that oozes out of the ground that is basically amounts to asphalt in our vocabulary and they're using asphalt as a mortar to make these furnace-fired bricks stick together and they've discovered if they do this, they can build some pretty spectacular stuff. Okay. And in fact, archaeologists have discovered that the, the first introduction of, of uh, furnace-fired bricks and the use of asphalt as a mortar to hold them together dates to about this time frame, surprisingly. Okay? And, dates, and also starts in this place. So as they go into Mesopotamia, into what was Mesopotamia, you know, modern-day Iraq, and they do their archaeology and they do their digging and they find these bricks. And they find these bricks still sticking together with asphalt and they find they're very difficult to separate. So there's been a major technological breakthrough here. And now that they have this major technological breakthrough, somebody, I'm assuming Nimrod or somebody associated with him, comes across this great idea, which is what? Let's build a tower, okay? First before the tower, though, is what? Let's build a city, and then let's build a tower. And they have a couple reasons for this. What are their reasons? Okay, they don't want to be scattered, and they want to make a name for themselves. Okay? So there's two issues that are at stake here. One is presumably... The fear and the inconvenience of being scattered. Okay, that we all we all know about the inconvenience of scattering, right? <laughs> Most of us, many of us, have moved in our lives, and we know how inconvenient that is. And we know how inconvenient it is to start in a new place and to build a new life. Okay, that's all very inconvenient, and then it makes it hard. You know, it's hard for me to. To communicate, not as hard now because of technology, but it's still kind of hard to communicate to my family when they're scattered all over the country or all over the world. It, it's just inconvenient, okay? But not only that, is uh, I can't take care of my kids anymore. Did you notice that? When they leave home, you, you just can't take care of them anymore. So there are security issues involved. You know, and I, I worry about my daughter down there in, you know, in that 
pagan land of Texas where you, know, <laughs> where, you know, and she has no voice and she's not taking care of herself. And, you know, so I worry about her well-being. Well, if she were here in my house or at least in my neighborhood, I wouldn't have to worry so much about her well-being because I could take care of it myself. I'd make sure she, her voice got rest and she got over her laryngitis, you know. I'd make sure my daughter, who's clear up there in Iowa, don't ask me why anybody would move to Iowa, as cold as it is out there, but my daughter who's up there, I'd make sure she gets her thesis written instead of knitting and talking on the Internet and all the other things. She, I'd make sure. So it's a, it's a matter of security, right? So these are issues in which these people are unwilling to endure the inconvenience of God's commandment. And they are unwilling to endure the risk of living by faith on God. Okay? But even more than that, they really want to be known. They want to be known as people who have really accomplished something. And so they've got a great idea. Let's build a tower that goes clear up into heaven. Now, they actually built these things all over Mesopotamia. Okay? They're called ziggurats, Z-I-G-G-U-R-A-T. Okay? And they built these things. And they're kind of like pyramids. Okay? And they're very tall. And they go up you know, and, and, and they, they taper upwards. And they have a, like a spiral staircase or whatever that goes up. And, and there's dispute about exactly what went on with these things. But generally, the idea was sometimes they were called, not here, but in other places they are called the gateway to heaven. And the idea was this was somehow you could connect with the gods, okay, through these ziggurats. Which is a, so this is the idea. They're, they kind of, on their own initiative and by their own power, they are building for themselves access to the heavens. And if they are successful in this, they're going to be famous. And for many generations to come, their descendants will look back on them and go, Look what they did. They built this great city and this great tower. Okay. Well, of course, the whole, the whole scenario is just this arrogant rebellion against God. The whole thing is they're just, they've gone completely independent of God. And so in reality they really have moved eastward in their hearts, haven't they? They've moved eastward in their hearts. And as I think about that, as I mentioned at the beginning of the lesson, this is one of the things that really challenges me because, because it, it seems from the way the story flows here, you know, that it, it, this didn't happen in the first generation after Noah. This happened several generations removed. This happened in the lifetime of Pelech, Right? Okay, so this happens several generations later. The point being, it took them a while to get from Ararat to Shinar. Yes? Do we have a, a time frame of when this happened after the flood? Uh, yes. Uh, yeah, somewhere, somewhere between 100 to 300 years after the flood. Somewhere in, somewhere in the lifetime of Peleg. Peleg was born about 100 years after the flood and he lived for a couple hundred years or so. Uh, so it's somewhere in that time frame of 100 to 300 years after the flood. Okay? So do, we, do we have a, a number as far as people? Uh, I, saw one number, I saw one number suggested, I think it was Delich and Keel in their commentary, suggested on the assumption that each generation had four males and four females if you just averaged it out that way and that's just obviously kind of speculation on their part but they came up with a neighbor, with a figure somewhere in the neighborhood of 30,000 people okay i suspect it was probably more than that but that was the that's the only number i've seen okay yes this something i've read about this that few number of people is really one thing that made significant the bricks being baked i mean that's one of the things that made it significant because when we read about these great cities, it was so close to the flood. You're talking about what we would think of as a village of huts. Yeah, okay, okay, yeah. Yeah, we th when we think of cities, we think of New York or, yeah, yeah. And that's a good point. Although eventually we discover 
that these cities do become really quite huge. For example, Nineveh, when Jonah gets there, it takes three days to walk across it. But that's many, many generations later, of course. So that's a good point. The cities are not cities like we think of today. So, okay. Well, the point is that in is that this took some time for them to get from Ararat to Shinar. And, and as I thought about this whole idea of moving eastward in a spiritual sense, I thought, well, you know, this is not just a problem that the people, the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth had. Of course, we are their descendants too. But it's not just a problem that those immediate descendants had. It's a problem we have too, isn't it? How easy it is for us, just over a period of time, to move east from the place of God's blessing and the place of God's covenant promise. And eventually find ourselves living quite comfortably in the plains of Shinar. And really kind of oblivious to the fact that we're really not doing what God told us to do in the first place. And really being more preoccupied with making a name for ourselves. Now, this whole idea of them making a name for themselves becomes quite significant. And a stark contrast is drawn for us as we come in just a few more verses when we get to the end of chapter 11 and we get into chapter 12 when we discover that there's a man who lives by a completely different worldview. And that's Abraham. And Abraham is a man who is willing to leave his place and leave his family and go to some place he has no clue where it is, but just trusting God that God's going to put him there and it's a place that God has reserved for him. And he has that confidence. And God says about that man, he says, I will make your name great. And so we really have a choice set before us, don't we? The choice is whether or not In our spiritual condition, we're going to move away from the place of God's promise and the place of God's presence and find ourselves living in Shinar and find ourselves trying to make a name for ourselves and find ourselves really being indifferent and having forgotten what God has really told us to do. Or are we going to be men and women like Abraham who are still sensitive to hear the voice of God and are completely indifferent to what people think about us, concerned only about what God thinks about us. Well, as I thought about that, I thought, boy, it's real easy to move eastward, isn't it, in our lives? It's real easy just to go on day because life can be kind of mundane at times. It's very easy to kind of go on and not realize over a period of time that spiritually I'm moving east. But fortunately for the people of Shinar, God interrupts this whole process. And so we have the pivotal verse in verse 5. And in the previous verses, a couple times, the people have said, come let us make bricks. Come let us build a city okay, and make a tower. But now we get God. He says, in, in uh, what verse 6, he says, come let us. Or verse 7, he says, come let us. Confuse their language. And he does this because God has now come down. Now, a lot of commentators say, well, he probably didn't really come down physically because they're thinking of his coming down like he did on Sinai. Okay, And he talks in Sinai about God coming down. And we had a dis- uh, study on that a number of months ago about what that was like. Well, obviously, that's not what he did. I don't think that's what he did. But there's another story about God coming down to investigate people in sin. What's that story, remember? Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay? And there, it's very clear from the, from the narrative, it's very clear that God comes down incarnate, in flesh, and talks to Abraham, and then goes over and judges Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay? Well, I have no reason to believe that he did anything less here. I don't know for sure whether he actually appeared in incarnate form or, 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 or whether this is an anthropomorphism. But what's interesting about this is it says God came down. Why is that significant? Because he's among men. Pardon? He's down here among 
Okay, in the context of the story, why does that jump out at you that God came down? They were trying to go up. And they thought they had, right? They thought they built a tower to heaven. And, and so what we get here in this story is it's, it's like God's just mocking them. God's just laughing at their hubris and their arrogance. Because here they are, they think, we're building a tower to God. But when God needs to check it out, He's got to come down. Because their tower doesn't really amount to a hill of beans. It's just human hubris that thinks that we, of our own endeavor, can somehow gain access to God. We cannot gain access to God unless God comes down. And so God comes down to see. Now, one of the things that's clear to me here is that God is intent on interfering with this process. Has God ever interfered with a vision of yours? Has God ever interfered with some great plan that you had? Boy, He's interfered with more than one of mine. And oftentimes... When that happens, it's easy for us to think that he just doesn't understand. I mean, he doesn't... Lord, you realize what I'm trying to do here? And the Lord's saying, do you realize I came down and I took a good look at it? And I have interfered with your plans because I know two things. I know your motives and I know the results. And so God interferes with the plans of the people here for these same two reasons. He knows their motives. He knows, one, that they're in outright disobedience to His instruction to scatter and spread across the face of the earth. They're in outright disobedience, but they're in disobedience because they're unwilling to trust Him because of their fear and because they're really more interested in establishing their own name than allowing God to establish their name. And so God sees their pride and He sees their fear and He sees their unbelief. He sees their motive. And so He's going to interfere with their great endeavor, this great vision they have. But He also is going to interfere with this great vision because of what He sees it's going to lead to. Okay, Do you notice that? He says, he says, look at what they have begun to do. And now he says, nothing that they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Okay? So God is anticipating, if we don't stop this here, something really ugly is going to happen. Does that sound familiar? What does that sound like? Why? Why did he send him from the garden? Right. So I ask you, was God sending Adam and Eve out of the garden a punishment or a judgment? Act of grace. It was an act of grace. It was an act of his mercy. Now, I don't know why, but as I read the commentaries on this passage, all the commentaries I read, I think all of them talked about God's action here as an act of judgment. But I don't see it as an act of judgment. It's an act of mercy. Yes? Are those two things... Um, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes, it is, it, is, it is clearly a judgment of their actions. And in that sense, it is a judgment. But primarily to me, I see the grace in it. Okay. Because remember last week when we talked about the nations being spread over the face of the earth and we went and we looked at Deuteronomy and we looked in Acts chapter 17. And what did we discover about that? God has a place for everybody, right? God has a place and He's, he's given a place for people. You know, as Americans, we're pretty arrogant about this. Because we think, you know, America is just the hottest place on the earth and everybody ought to want to live here. 
Well, I hate to disabuse you of that. There are a lot of people who do because of our economic prowess and because of our political freedom. There are a lot of people in the world who would love to live here. But I hate to tell you, the vast majority of the people of the world don't want to live here. They want to live where they are. And the reason for that is because that's the place God gave them. And it's the best place for them. And I know it's the best place for them because that's what Paul said when he was preaching on Mars Hill. A Jew preaching to Gentiles on Mars Hill is saying, among other things, this place here, Greece, is where God puts you and it is your place and He puts you in order here in order that you might seek Him. So the place where God has put these nations, generally speaking, the place where God has put them is in order that they might know His blessing and in order that they might seek Him. And so, when God comes down at Babel to interfere with this whole process and disrupt this whole process, He is doing so because it's His intention that everybody wouldn't be piled up on top of one another, living in apartments, you know, 50 stories high, but that they would spread out over the face of the whole earth and that they would each have a land, that they would each have an inheritance, and that they would each be in a place where they are encouraged to seek for God. And so it is a judgment. It is a punishment on their endeavor. But only because that is what they now worship. They worship this place they have built and they worship this endeavor they have given themselves to and God wrenches it out of their hands. And so in that sense, it is a judgment and it is a punishment. But in another sense, it is God's great blessing upon them. Okay? Yes? Could it be also that uh, with the flood thing so close I've heard that. I've heard that offered as an explanation. There's nothing in the text to indicate that, that that's what's in their thinking. And when we look at the history of the ziggurats, that's never seems to be in the, in the his, archaeological and historical record of the ziggurats. There's nothing to indicate that that's a factor in their mind. Although I have heard that at time. In fact, when I grew up, I grew up being taught the Tower of Babel was built as a place to get away from the flood. But when I read Genesis, I went, that's not what it says. <laughs> it says they were just trying to make a name for themselves. So, so I don't know whether that was an element or not. Yes? So, cultural, I mean, the, the history of the Zigarots, I haven't read that. But were they already worshipping other, I mean, sure they were worshipping other gods, but they weren't obeying what he said to do. But as far as idolatry and mm-hmm. all that, but, but was there actual, they were making gods to worship in places? The text doesn't tell us. By the time we get to Abraham's father, Terah, we know for, in fact that, for a fact that they were, but that's several generations removed from here. So, but the text doesn't tell us at this point whether or not outright idolatry is involved. I suspect that it was. Okay, but the text doesn't tell us. Yeah. You know, I would think that Nimrod was pretty much the leader at this time. And, you know, the, the people were looking at someone you know, who might uh, to be a leader, and they were going to follow the self-secure. And I think that is the reason to me it seems like this guy was trying to grab a hold of power for himself. Oh, I, yeah, I think that's clearly the case. I mean, that's the implication of, of what it says about Nimrod in chapter 10. Yeah, that that there is an arrogance here. But what's interesting is that his name isn't mentioned in the account of Babel itself. The emphasis in the Tower of Babel is on the agreement of all the peoples to be a part of this. Now, I don't think, I doubt seriously, that everybody wanted to be a part of this. <laughs> you know? But what's interesting is we have a tyrant here. And a tyrant does two things. He motivates a lot of people to go along with him. And the people he can't motivate, he coerces. Okay? That's just the character characteristic of tyranny. Well, so the question is, so God comes down and he confuses their language and the people scatter then over the face of the whole earth. And so the question that we would naturally ask ourselves at this point is, now what? Now what? 
And there's a, there's a marked change that occurs immediately after this verse. And the whole focus of Scripture, beginning in verse 10 of Genesis 11, uh, Genesis 11 and on all the way through the Old Testament and well into the New Testament, there's a focus change. Because up to now, we've just been focused primarily on the peoples of the earth, beginning with Adam and Eve, with the exception, of course, of, of, of uh, Noah, where we focus quite a bit on him there for two or three chapters. We've pretty much been just kind of looking at the peoples of the whole earth. But beginning in the next verse, in the next Taladot, and from there on out, the focus shifts and focuses on exclusively one people, the people of Israel. And the focus from this point on will be on the people of Israel until we get to Acts chapter 10. That's where the focus is going to be. Not that there aren't some exceptions to that. Some of the prophets prophesy to the Gentile nations, etc. But pretty much, Scripture is focused on the Jews. And the question is, so, what has happened? Has God just, since He had to scatter these nations and they now have all these different languages, has He just written them off? Has He just forgotten about them? Has He just abandoned this promise of blessing that He made to Noah? And to Noah's sons? Because people's sin was so great that God was unable to accomplish His purposes or unwilling to accomplish His purpose of raising up for Him a host of mankind who would worship and adore and fellowship with Him, which was His purpose at creation. Has He now abandoned that? Fortunately, even though the focus changes in the next verse, within a few verses we discover quite quickly that no, he has not abandoned that purpose. Because we get down, as we are introduced to the story of Abraham, we discover that God's purposes of Abraham is to do what? Bless all the nations of the earth through Abraham. And God intends to do that two ways through the, in two ways through the descendants of Abraham. One is that through the descendants of Abraham and His blessing upon the descendants of Abraham, He makes this very clear, that the people, the nations of the world would look upon the Jews, would look upon the children of Abraham and see God's favor and God's blessing upon them and they would be drawn to this same God to worship Him. But the most significant way in which God intended to bless the nations through Abraham was how? Through the Messiah, through the promised seed through the seed, of the, the, the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. And that seed is going to come through Abraham. And through him, all, it was his intention not just that the Jews would be blessed, but that all the nations of the world would be blessed. Well, Israel, as we've seen, abrogated their responsibility in that. And so God, at some point, then temporarily sets them aside. And in their place, He establishes what? The church. And the purpose and the function of the church is to do what? To bless the nations of the earth. That's our job, folks. God has scattered them all over the earth and they've got all kinds of different languages and they've got different cultures and they've got different ways of thinking and they're always going to be that way and they're going to be that way when they come into the kingdom of God, people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So they're always going to be that way, but it's your job and my job to see to it that they receive the blessing. That's our job, folks. And that was the job that Jesus gave to the disciples before He ascended into heaven. And the striking thing about what happened with the church in the early chapters of Acts is that they very quickly moved from Ararat to Shinar. And so by the time we get to chapter 8 of Acts, the church is very happy because they're having a great time. And lots of people are getting saved and they're getting more influential, and they're getting more comfortable. And it becomes necessary once again for God to scatter the people. And so what does He do in Acts chapter 8? 
persecution. He sends a great persecution. Now, God is not the creator or the author of persecution, but he allows this great persecution. And this great persecution that then happens in Jerusalem scatters the church. And as I reflected on that story and reflected on this whole thing about what happened here at the Tower of Babel, and I reflect on the whole situation with the New Testament church there in the early chapters of Acts, and I had to ask myself, as a church, as a as, a, as the body of Christ, are we back in Shinar? Particularly the American church. Are we back in Shinar? Have we moved so far eastward that we have forgotten the mandate of God to fill the earth with His blessing? Have we become so comfortable with our lives and so obsessed with making a name for ourselves that we are unwilling to trust God for our lives and for the lives of our children and our grandchildren so that we really, really somehow get invested in this issue of blessing the nations. That's our job, folks. And if we don't do that job as an American church, If we don't do that job, I think we can expect God to come down and confuse our language. Confuse our language. Come down and confuse our language. And so we have a responsibility. I don't know what your individual responsibility is. And I sometimes struggle to figure out what my individual responsibility is. But I have a responsibility and you have a responsibility as members of the body of Christ to be blessing those nations. When God came down and scattered them over the face of the earth, it wasn't because He wanted to forget about them and the last thing He wants us to do is forget about them. That's the last thing He wants us to do. He wants us to be a part of blessing those nations. Let's make sure that we have not moved from Ararat to Shinar as individuals and as a church. Okay, well, uh, next week, Jim will be talking to you about worldviews.